Volume 2, Chapter 7 of Evelyn, or A Heart Unmasked, a novel by Anna Cora Mowat. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Kelly Taylor. Chapter 7 We look before and after, and pine for what is not. Our sincerest laughter with some pain is fraught. Our sweetest songs are those that tell of saddest thought. Shelley From Catherine Bolton to Elizabeth Montague January 3rd, 18 blank I am sad today, in one of those spiritless moods which disable us from exertion. Through the whole morning I have been endeavoring to struggle against a feeling of causeless discontent. I have long been convinced of the folly, ingratitude, and positive sinfulness of giving way to such emotions, yet how difficult it is to conquer them. I have busied myself in various ways, but the evil spirit still possesses me. As a last means, and I trust an effectual one of exercising it, I have seized upon a couple of large sheets of letter paper, caught up my pen, and seated myself in the dear old armchair dedicated to reverie, scribbling, and to thoughts of you. The spot where it stands should be a consecrated ground. The spirit of discontent shall not reach me here. Now let me examine my heart to discover what chord has vibrated its touch. Is it the ghost of the lost, perhaps fallen Evelyn, which spreads a gloom about my soul? No, my grief for her is constant and sincere, but not gloomy. Am I moved with sympathy for Ellen's sorrow? No, Ellen's character shines forth too brightly in the midst of trial to inspire me with discontent. Is it Blanche's pale face, and the strange words she murmurs to herself, and which proclaim that reason is half dethroned, is it these which depress me? Or is it the strange vision of the past which momentarily rises before my eyes as they dwell with a despairing gaze upon the future? Yes, Blanche is mingled with that dream. Were it not for her, I might have... Shall I finish my sentence by saying I might have been guilty of a very foolish deed? But should I not be thankful, happy, joyful, that I have been permitted to rescue this unfortunate girl from the abyss of misery over which circumstance had suspended her? She sits upon a low bench beside me now, busily employed in winding a basket full of worsteds, Sometimes she leans her small, beautifully shaped head against my knee and turns her piercing dark eyes to my face with a look of softness very unusual to them. A moment ago I ceased writing to seek for a nimbler pen, and she took my disengaged hand and pressed it to her lips. Her childlike and affectionate manners remind me of those of Evelyn, before she had awakened to a sense of necessities of her own heart. But Blanche is so diminutive, so fragile in her form, 
that these infantile ways seem not as graceful merely, but more appropriate to her. I have not dared to converse with her upon the subject of her wrongs and her menaced revenge. She is calm now, and one inadvertent word might render her frantic again. Both Amy and I have come to the conclusion that it would be dangerous to leave her alone. Her reason is too much impaired for her to be responsible for her own acts. When I am forced to absent myself, Amy is always ready to fill my place, and Blanche is an object of such deep interest that our watchfulness never grows wearisome. I am quite certain that she has not met Mr. Elton since the afternoon when I last permitted her to walk alone. Fleeser has recently enlarged his establishment by uniting it to the house on our right, and as Mr. Elton's apartments are now in a separate building from mine, any casual reconnoiter with Blanche would be unlikely. Oh, what a taintless flower was plucked from the brow of purity! What a flawless gem from the finger of truth when... Afternoon. A loud knock, succeeded by the words, Couldn't you let a feller in? Let a feller in, can't you? Suddenly hurled me from the poetical pinnacle upon which I held but an uneasy seat and I lighted upon an unpicturesque plane of reality. Could it be Richard, thought I? Would he really make his way to my chamber instead of sending for me in the parlor? Miss Kitty, my dear, my dear Miss Kitty, I mean, are you deaf? Can't you hear me, Miss Kitty? Have you lost your hearing, or ain't you in? These words left no doubt upon my mind. I arose to give him admission, and Blanche stole timidly to a corner. As soon as I turned the key, Richard himself threw open the door and bustled in, looking from side to side to discover whether or not I was alone. This was the first time that I beheld him since Evelyn's disappearance. He had changed both in person and in garb. He looked thin and haggard. His clothes, which had laterly been quite decent, although as outre as ever, were torn and threadbare. The colonel, it would seem, no longer supplies him with a suitable wardrobe. You don't mind me, so I thought I'd come up. Old friends, you know, haven't made my toilette yet today, so don't look at me, will ya? I smilingly replied in the negative, but I am afraid that I did so without remembering to turn away my eyes. "'What a deuce long time it's been since I've seen you,' Richard rattled on. "'Where have you kept yourself, eh? "'Didn't see you this New Year's, did you? "'Sad things, sad things have happened since last New Year's. "'Poor Evie. Can't get her out of my head. "'I missed her as much as Peter Schmiel did his shadow. "'She was so confounded handsome. "'Her beauty was her bane, as the newspaper poets say. "'Didn't you always think we looked alike?' A strong family resemblance, wasn't there? I escaped a direct reply to this question by asking, What do you mean by saying her beauty was her bane? Have you heard of her? Not yet, not yet. 
Why, I didn't mean to say anything in particular, except it's more than likely that some young wild rippers caught her up in the street and run off with her in spite of all she could do. Oh, if I could catch the rascal, and I will catch him, I guess he'll find out Evie's got a brother worth having, and that in no time. The colonel's quite of my opinion. He says that Evie's so devilish pretty that any one of these meddlesome young bloods would run off with her in a jiffy. But I'll find her yet. I've searched the city from the Battery to Bloomingdale already, and I'm going to go over the ground again, no mistake. I'm going to find her, or I'll know the reason why, and let me alone for when I'll say I'll do the thing. Just let me get on the scent once, and the way I'll ferret them out will be a caution. Never fear. I shan't give up in a hurry. You have my sincerest wishes for your success, I replied. And perhaps you are right as to Evelyn's fate. Right? To be sure I'm right. Ain't I always right, I'd like to know? Let me tell you, I'm a pretty cute fella, though some people wouldn't think it. Besides, don't the colonel say I've hit the mark? Are you as intimate with the colonel as ever? I inquired. Well, now, ain't that a strange question? I was just thinking the same thing myself this morning, and I came to the conclusion that we were better friends than ever, but the colonel has grown stupid. He isn't half the company he was. He's hipped. That's it. He's hipped. I told him so myself, and then he won't let anybody see the rooms he's just been furnishing. I've never yet got my nose further than his library, and he's got two parlors and one bedroom upstairs, and he keeps them locked up as though they were no kind of use at all. The colonel's grown queer, quite queer. I think he misses Ebby as much as I do. It's enough to make a man blow his brains out just to think that there's no knowing what has become of her. And then mother, she's as doleful as an old magpie when it's molting. But I do believe she's thought more of the little one than of Evie, after all. Have you seen Ellen lately? inquired all. Oh, I've seen her, but Nellie's so busy there's no such as chance to say a word to her. And she hasn't ears for anybody but father. Then Walter, how cool he takes it, hey? Never saw him shed a tear about the matter yet. Not he. The fellow's got no heart. I always said he hadn't. It was throwing Evie away to let her have him, but it was all mother's doing. Now there's the colonel. Walter can no more come up to him than nothing at all. If the colonel only have had Evie, he'd have taken better care of her. Mr. Merritt loved your sister very tenderly, said I. So he ought to, no thanks to him. How could he help loving her? We were interrupted at this moment by a gentle knock at the door. Richard jumped from his seat as though a gun had been discharged near him, exclaiming, Who's that? Don't, now, don't, don't open the door yet. Couldn't you hide me somewhere? I ain't fit to be seen. I haven't shaved and brushed up yet. He ran about the little room as he said these words, peeping into every corner and terrifying Blanche by his bewildered manner. She knocked over my work table in escaping from him and rushed to me for protection. Don't be frightened, little one, don't. Never mind me. I wasn't going to harm you. 
The tap on the door was repeated. I approached to open it, but Richard interrupted me. Don't let anybody in. It might not look well, you know, after keeping them out so long, and they to find me here. He shook his head very warningly, and as though his words were intended to express a great deal. But you must let me see who is there, even if I do refuse them admission, said I, forcibly passing him. On opening the door, I found Ellen standing without. She entered at my invitation, but Richard, who had concealed himself behind the bed, did not perceive her. I quietly led her up to his hiding place, and to her astonishment, she discovered her brother crouching beside the valance. So it's only you, Nellie, is it? Why, you scared me half to death. In the first place, I'm in a pretty pickle for anybody to see me, and in the next, you know it mightn't do for Miss Kitty to be found shut up here with a young man. Reputation, you know. Reputation's everything. It's a scandalous world. I'm an independent fellow, and you needn't heed it of Philip, but then I'm not the man to compromise an innocent woman. Well, now, you've got Nellie here, Miss Kitty. I'm off. I just dropped in to talk matters and things with you, and I knew you'd like to see me, so goodbye. I'll look in again before long, but don't have anybody else when I'm here. I'm exclusive, you know. Set me down as one of your exclusives. So goodbye. Goodbye, Nellie, dear. I haven't a moment to spare for you. Goodbye, miss. This last goodbye was intended for Blanche, by whom it was unnoticed. When Richard had departed, Ellen laid aside her bonnet and shawl and said, I have come for a long talk over matters and things, as Richard calls it. I have a great need of your friendly advice. I will not begrudge it to you, answered I, for it is the only coin in which I am rich, and I generally find it an uncurrent one. In the first place, I must tell you that Walter has very much altered, began Ellen. You need hardly tell me that, dear Ellen. But I mean that he has altered towards father, mother, and myself. He has treated us all lately with marked and increasing reserve. Perhaps that is fancy, for I myself have imagined that he has grown cold towards me. And so he has, and... I cannot bear to speak ill of anybody, Miss Catherine, but Laura Hilson has something to do with this change. She is always with Walter. She meets him in the street whenever he goes out, and she pretends to visit us, but she never comes except when Walter is at home. They have long talks together, and Walter will not now permit any of us to mention Evelyn or dear little Lilla. But he never mentioned Evelyn himself after the first few days of her absence. That was because the very sound of her name affected him. But now it is not grief alone that he feels. It is anger and indignation and shame. For a week or two past, Mother's most strenuous efforts have failed to please, and her presence is an evident annoyance. This morning, after breakfast, he told us that he had been very unsuccessful in business lately, and he thought it quite useless now that he had no longer either wife or child to be harassed with the troubles, and that his resources drained by the expenses of housekeeping. 
He concluded by saying that the house would be rented on or before the 1st of May, and that he should send most of the furniture to auction as soon as possible. You can easily imagine mother and father's undisguised consternation and grief. I think their troubled looks and something mother said must have softened Walter a little, for he told us that we must consider the furniture of our bedrooms to be our own. The question now is, what are we to do? In what manner are we to support ourselves? The answer to these questions will require some reflection, replied I. But, dear Ellen, I have longed for this necessary consequence of Lilla's death, and I have already thought much upon the only course which was left for you to pursue. Have you? Oh, thank you, returned Ellen gratefully. You are ever thoughtful, ever interested in the welfare of others. I expected no less from you. And now tell me your project. We must live, and the secret of living without means we have lost, for which I am thankful. Mother is overwhelmed with grief. Father is is not very strong. I am the only one capable of making any exertion, and I am ready to exert myself to the utmost. Look, I have brought you my second translation to revise. I have stolen a few hours from my rest every night that it might be concluded, but I cannot hope to contribute much to our support by my pen. Truly, I am afraid you will hardly make a fortune, Ellen. A garret is proverbially the author's palace, and a translator cannot expect much better lodgings. Then we must think of some other employment, although this one in which I take great pleasure, as yet I cannot see my way. Shall I point it out, my hopeful Ellen? The path is not a smooth and thornless one, and you are too young and inexperienced to tread it alone, but perhaps a companion may be given to you. Go on, do go on, you have awakened my curiosity. You cannot speedily gain livelihood by translating works from foreign languages, or even by selling your own productions, should you find yourself able to produce anything worth purchasing. Our most eminent writers have struggled on by slow degrees to frame, and some of them to fortune. But your necessities are too urgent to permit this delay. You must then choose a lower walk, and it may be a less congenial one. Since you are prevented from amusing and instructing mankind by your pen, how would you like to make yourself useful in bending the twig that inclines the tree? What do you mean, dear Miss Catherine? Do you mean that I could gain a livelihood by teaching? But who would employ me? I am very sorry that I cannot answer that question, Ellen, because if I could, our difficulties would be at an end. I could not procure a situation as governess because I could not leave my mother and father. Very true. If I became a teacher in a school, my salary would be but a mere pittance, and I am afraid not sufficient to maintain my parents. True again. How then could I possibly contribute to our support by teaching? questioned Ellen, rather emphatically. Pray tell me what you propose at once. Could you not establish a school yourself? That would be a wild idea indeed. 
I am too young to hope to succeed in such an undertaking. Who would entrust their children to my care? That is another unanswerable question, the reply to which would end our doubts. But since you look upon your youth as a fault, what would you think of the undertaking if you were assisted by a person whom time had cured of that happy failing? Miss Catherine! Dear, kind, good Miss Catherine! she suddenly exclaimed, clapping her hands in delight. Do you mean yourself? Even so, Ellen, if you will enter into a partnership with me. But can it be possible? You, why should you? If you will have a little patience, I will explain everything. In the first place, my travels last summer have so seriously diminished my capital that I no longer find my income sufficient for my absolute wants. Our cases are very similar. Necessity whispers to us both that our hands and head must not be consecrated to idleness. I see no insurmountable barrier to my project. If we can only procure scholars, circumstance might make a very tolerable schoolmistress out of either of us. But where could we keep our school? What would become of mother and father? Where would they live? They would live with us and our school would be kept in our own house. My plan is this. We could hire a small two-story house. I could give security for the rent, and Mr. and Mrs. Willard will, of course, be the nominal heads of the establishment. But how will we obtain scholars? I have but few friends in the city, but those few are sincere ones. Through their influence, we may hope to obtain some pupils. Your mother has very numerous circle of acquaintances, and through her we may procure a few more. But if we keep house, what are we to do for furniture? We shall want but little, and that little I will endeavour to supply. But servants, we shall need servants, and they are always expensive." Such as we shall need will not be so, and we must learn to help ourselves. Blanche will be of some assistance, and Amy provides her with all necessaries, then. Ellen interrupted me with Netta. Might we not take Netta? She would be very useful. Her parents would willingly place her under my charge, and I could clothe her for her services, and educate her besides. Certainly. And see how rapidly we have arranged all the preliminaries. We have taken a house, established a school, our house is furnished, and we are provided with domestics. Come, Aladdin's lamp could hardly have done more. Why, we are quite comfortably settled in anticipation." And I began to think that we may be so in reality, replied Ellen. Then I advance than you, for I have decided that we may both be comfortable and content. If we could only hear from Evelyn, my poor dear sister, if we could only learn her fate, we might begin the world anew. I have not followed the example of others, Miss Catherine. I have not resigned all hope. 
I expect to see Evelyn again, and I do not believe that she is dead. Nor can I believe it. Time unrolls the volume of concealment, and we must wait until it pleases him to turn the next leaf. Our conversation was of but little longer duration, for Ellen was anxious to return home and disclose our new scheme to her parents. January 20th I have long neglected to dispatch you this unconcluded letter, and the delay has enabled me to communicate some interesting intelligence. The pensive Amy's eye has brightened, and her gentle lips are wreathed with smiles. Well, before her looks, as the world can only look to a trustful, loving youth, her own cheerful sight gives a lovely tint to the meanest object, and were not her joy clouded by the remembrance of her beloved friend Evelyn, Amy's happiness would be perfect. In a word, dear Elizabeth, her fair cheek will soon look fairer beneath the bridal veil, and the enchanted bridegroom is no other than the gay and gallant Colonel Damereaux. The wooing has not been tedious, nor the winning difficult. There is not a spice of coterie in Amy's disposition. She is as open as day, and as confiding as a child. Her heart responded at once to the passion she had excited, and she is too pure for concealment. Not long since she frankly confessed to me that for a year past she had entertained very warm feelings towards Colonel Damoreau. The love she experiences is a sort of clinging, worshipping admiration. She has yielded up her whole heart, and never doubts that to give all is to receive everything. I should hardly have thought that being so soft and sensitive and as placid as Amy would have been the choice of our brilliant and vivacious colonel. Yet when I see them together, I am sometimes inclined to believe that hers is the only character calculated to ensure his happiness. The parents of Amy have made no objection to their proposed son-in-law, for Amy's wishes are all potent with them and their scruples, had they entertained any, must have vanished before the colonel's unequaled powers of captivation. Love has not changed, but it has strengthened and brought forth Amy's character, and imparted to it a deeper coloring. She is almost too meek and pensive, and now frequently disturbed equanimity renders her more interesting. I did not give her credit for as much enthusiasm as she hourly displays, but this enthusiasm invariably has its source in and centers upon the choice of her young heart. What a mine of love is the breast of a young woman! With what lavish recklessness she heaps its treasures upon the one to whom she has plighted her faith! If men were as grateful as women are loving, the world would contain but few broken hearts. When Amy's engagement was communicated to me, she answered my congratulations by saying, I am in the happy state when not one drop more can be added to the chalice. I have dreamed of such happiness, but never expected to find it. 
I inquired of her yesterday whether she had spoken to Colonel Damoreau of Blanche, and she replied that to do so were to boast of a very accidental charity, and that after her marriage Blanche should be allowed to choose whether she would reside with Amy or myself. At all events, Blanche will not lose her protector, but the poor girl has become so dear to me that I cannot endure the thought of a separation. Ellen and I have entered with spirit into our new project. We have made unremitting exertions to procure scholars and have obtained the promise of several in the spring. also selected a small cottage in 27th Street, not merely because the rent is low, but because the air in that part of the city is so much purer and consequently healthier than most other situations. And to me, a pure atmosphere is one of the greatest luxuries in life. Mrs. Willard at first strenuously opposed Ellen's views and mine, but she has now so completely lost her energy that her objections were quickly overruled. Mr. Merritt said very little upon the subject. Mr. Willard begged that we would make him of service in keeping the books and collecting the quarterly payments, adding that he has lost his taste for Wall Street after having lost everything else which he brought there. Ellen's manuscript was dispatched a week ago to the same publisher who brought out her former translation. She stated in the note which accompanied it that she had been paid $15 for the first translation and that the transaction had been made through Mr. Elton. Yesterday we received an answer which occasioned us no little surprise, but fortunately the manuscript was not returned. The publisher stated that the former translation was not sold but given to them by Mr. Elton, and that as they were unwilling to run the risk of producing it at their own cost, the printing expenses had been paid by him. They added that the work had unexpectedly been so successful that they were willing to purchase a translation by the same but enclosed the $15 mentioned. I shall not endeavor to tell you what I felt on reading that note. How like the generous friend of former days! How, ah, it is vain to dwell upon the past! End of chapter 7